Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is May the 30th, 2022. As always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco on the edge of Silicon Valley. There are many things one could say about Silicon Valley, and there's certainly one thing we can say for certain right now, that we're living in what is now locally known as the tech lash. There's a lot of reaction against the consequences of technology. Uh, last week, I had a young entrepreneur, Joshua Bradder, on the show, CEO of the startup Do Not Pay, defending himself against three Stanford professors, uh, former professors of his, in fact, uh, who've written a book called System Error, Where Big Tech Went Wrong and How We Can Reboot. They're all telling uh, Browder and guys like Browder that they need to be more civically responsible. The criticism against technology is profound and long-lasting and deep. Uh, we see it every week on this show. I had uh, one business professor, Morris Stuckey, on the show recently arguing that Big tech barons, or what he calls big tech barons, are actually smashing innovations. They're not even leading an innovative economy. He has a new book out, Breaking Away, How to Regain Control Over Our Data, Privacy, and Autonomy. The issue of privacy is key. Many people believe that big tech has destroyed our privacy, that we're being watched all the time. We had one law professor recently on the show, Ari Ezra Waldman, new book out. Uh, Industry Unbound, the inside story of privacy data and corporate power. It goes beyond just privacy. It perhaps reaches our most existential core. Carolyn Chen on the show recently, a UC Berkeley sociologist, has a new book out, Work, Pray, Code, in which she says that these big tech companies have become like a church. We treat them as if they're a religion and perhaps... The greatest anti-cleric when it comes to writing about technology is my old friend Dave Eggers, um, very popular, uh, high-profile writer, fiction writer. He was on the show late last year. His new book, uh, The Every, is uh, part of this critique of big tech, of technology, of its impact on our lives. The tech lash then is here. It's a reality. And indeed, there's even a new book out called The Tech Lash and Tech Crisis Communication. It's a book which in some senses, I think, is a defense of big tech and of the technology industry. And it's written by my guest today, Nirit Weissblatt, who is talking to me from Cupertino, which happens to be also the small town on the peninsula uh, where Apple is based. And Nirit, welcome. Congratulations on your new book. Um, perhaps you might define what you mean by the tech clash in your new book. Well, the clear definition uh, is that since 2017-ish, we started to get this big negative reaction uh, against the big tech companies sitting right here in the valley. And it was regard different things, as you mentioned, the privacy, uh, election manipulation, addiction, a lot of things at once that created this uh, backlash against big tech. That's like the definition. Do you think that it's justified? Um, I haven't even mentioned Mark Zuckerberg yet. I haven't mentioned Google, haven't mentioned Twitter. 
Do you think there's some truth in the tech lash? Do you think um, it was a needed reaction to our love affair with the tech industry and with technology in general? Of course, and some would say uh, long overdue. But what I'm documenting in the book, and I don't think it's a defense book, um, I, what I put there is, I think, both sides of the story. Because I had the tech journalist uh, saying, uh, we're doing our job, speak to to power, uh, you know, hold them to account for all the harms they do to society. So that's great journalism. But I also had uh, representative companies and their uh, PR department saying it's over uh, simplifying the harms. It's overstating the harms. It's like they went too far uh, with this, uh, let's say, backlash. And uh, I think what the book documents is that we are drawn to those extremes. So we're now in this extreme of uh, the tech lash. But the reality is somewhere in the middle, but we're not getting it because uh, what you have is an escalation. So the tech critics, they were always here, but they are escalating their rhetoric. So Mark Zuckerberg doesn't only create uh, problems in the world, he's the devil and he's evil and he's a villain. And yeah, <laughs> right here. Uh, and uh, the tech companies on their side look and say, okay, some of the things that the critics are saying is uh, oversimplified, um, something that it's like, um, it's a cynicism of just blaming us for everything. So we just stop listening to the critics and take everything as um, something that's uh, uninformed talking about, they don't understand the technology. And that creates uh, a slew of new problems because they become ten, uh, tone deaf. Because for them now, because of the volume of the criticism and the content of the criticism, they're like, they don't understand us, so we're just going to do it our way. And you don't have like real nuanced conversation. I think that's my criticism. And I think it makes the book defensive. The book, uh, as I said, is The Tech Lash and Tech Crisis Communication. You're in the communication business near it. Some people might be listening or watching and say, well, she would say that. She's employed by big tech companies. How would you respond to that? I'm what? That you would say that, that you make your living somehow not. paid by big tech companies. Is that fair? No, because it's not true. I'm not employed by any of them, not getting any payment, any, nothing, actually. No, there nothing. is, whether or not you're involved with it, there is a huge industry, huge money now um, coming through tech marketing and PR departments um, I'm, I'm or messaging. Um, so it, it's not as if tech is being somehow obliterated in the, in the public relations marketplace, is it? So let me again repeat, I'm not in PR. I was like 15 years ago. And then I switched side to be a tech journalist, to be on the receiving end of the press releases and uh, to say that they are bullshit when it's needed. So I think that being on two sides of the fence made me a better academic, which I am, I'm a researcher, and I observe uh, this sphere with you know both backgrounds and this is how I analyze things without any, let's say, a bias or agenda or anything, just to be clear. Some people might say near it that the tech industry has done enormous harm to not just the American economy, not just to the 
Silicon Valley itself or the San Francisco Bay Area, but to democracy, for example. One of the headlines um, from last week is about a D.C. attorney general suing Mark Zuckerberg over his handling of the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which, of course, undermined American democracy. We have the ongoing, uh, I don't know what we would call it, the ongoing <laughs> furor over Elon Musk's attempt to buy Twitter, to, 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 to allow Donald Trump back on Twitter. Some people think that's a good thing. Some people think it's a bad thing. I personally actually think it's not such a bad thing. But certainly there's a certain childishness and um, rudeness about Musk's behavior. He's worth usually, depending on the uh, the Tesla stock price, he's usually worth over $100 billion. Would it be fair to say that the, the tech industry, with its inequalities, with its irresponsibility, with its childishness, has done enormous damage to America in 2022? Along with a lot of good stuff. And again, you put me in a position as if I need to uh, apologize for what they do. They do affect society, both bad, a lot of harm, but also good. A lot of things that we use and love. So what I'm saying in the book, Tech Clash, is that they... We're used to just the cheerleading part of, you know, product launches and everything was fluttering and uh, most tech journalists were fanboys that just love the new devices or services. And now what we have is a media that is more obsessed with the negative, which is okay. It's its role. It's what it's supposed to do. But when it's only dealing with the bad things that you mentioned in others, what it creates on their side is just what I said. It, it, they feel like you're yelling wolf, wolf, wolf on things that they don't think. Uh, it's the reality of what happened. And then you don't have like real dialogue that will actually improve things. You don't have real solutions. Because the debate is, as I said, in the extremes. And this is why the theme of the book is pendulum swings. Because we moved from one extreme to the other. And now the criticism is about you know, as I said, the fact that we don't have a nuanced discussion. It's all, it's only technology is good, technology is bad, and it's not the right discussion we should have. It's binary, it's simplifying things, and uh, people uh, that I interviewed within the media admitted that it's just the way, the media is pro-conflict, so it's like it's something that it does. And some of its criticism against social media is something that the media has, it's as, as media eels. It comes uh, years back, like the attention economy that we're always talking about and things like that. Um, you can see it with some of the headlines that you just read aloud. Um, some but of them are headlines. harsher yeah. than the... ...about Cambridge Analytica undermining democracy or Elon Musk's decision to buy Twitter reshaping American democracy. These aren't inventions, are they? Excuse me? They're not inventions. These are real stories. They're not people making stuff up. Sure. But when the headline is trying to say that, I'm not talking about Elon, I'm talking about, let's say, Mark Zuckerberg here, that he's responsible for all the things that happened to the US democracy, including the election of Donald Trump, that's, it's just not true. There are so many other underlying societal issues here with uh, 2016 and uh, November election, and uh, it's less talked about because it's just easier to blame Cambridge Analytica, which some researchers would tell you didn't have as much as effect that it's marketing itself to have. 
I'm not convinced by this middle ground. Uh, a lot of very credible tech journalists have changed their minds radically. My old friend, for example, David Kirkpatrick, when this was a, a TechCrunch show back in 2011, he came on the show and he and I had a good argument about the benefits of, of, of Facebook. He was at that point, he was a great defender, believer in Facebook, in enabling democracy and enriching society. He's dramatically changed his mind over the last seven or eight years. He was on the show last month talking about how Facebook has gone from tragedy to farce. He, he's deeply disturbed by its impact on our democracy, on democracies around the world, from Philippines to, um, to, 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 to many other democracies uh, in Asia and uh, in the Middle East. I mean, these, these are real criticisms. They're not just... Um, that they're not made up. People like like Kirkpatrick are, are are deeply disturbed, and they were historically people who believed in these technologies and these companies, and they spent their lives reporting on tech. They're not wrong, are they? People like David Kirkpatrick. No, they're not, and it's okay that they are concerned. They're, as I said, real concerns, specifically the ones that you mentioned. Uh, but step. Back. So when I'm uh, showing things in the media that I think are correct or, in my uh, opinion, needs to um, improve a bit, is let's say, um, okay, I'll give you an example. There was um election in a small town in Alabama where a black woman uh, wanted to be the new mayor. Now, it's a small town of 7,000 people, uh, like 90% white, and she wasn't elected. And the articles said it's because of Facebook. It was propaganda on Facebook against her. And this is why she lost the race. And nowhere in the article, it was a long magazine uh, article, I think it was Mother Jones. And nowhere the word racism was mentioned as something historic in this place. So this is my point. When you only focus on what you see, yeah, you saw a lot of racism in the Facebook group from this town, and it's horrible. It was there before, maybe it's amplified, and you should blame the amplification part, but just ignore the actual societal issue here, which is racism. It's not the best journalism. Are you saying that these journalists are oversimplifying, vulgar, vulgarizing the truth? Or do they know what they're doing in terms of now blaming everything on Facebook? I don't think it's in, in like intentional or, I mean, they're quoting people that it's their agenda to say those things. And it's, again, okay. What the public is getting is a picture that is not the full picture. And what I mean by that, I'm a communication researcher, okay? So I look from, like the lens of communication theory. And if you look at, let's say, agenda setting, what agenda setting is actually saying is that the media has its power to, um, it's two levels. So the first level is what to think about the subjects uh, that it chooses to cover. And the second level is the attributes of those subjects, like the framing and the narrative, okay? So it's truthful. What to think about and how to think about it. And as I said, for decades, when you talked about technology, it was innovation, it was progress, it about look at this cool thing. So all the attributes attached were positive and flattering. 
Now, all the attributes attached to the subjects are just the harmful things only. And that is the picture people get about technology and the companies. What I'm saying is that it's maybe, you know, need to have more voices inside. Who, who is particularly guilty here? Um, I know I'm, you refer in your book to the, there, there are a number of um, still very influential online tech publications, The Verge, for example, TechCrunch, where this show used to reside. Um, is the traditional technology online press, are they still doing a reasonable job? Uh, 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 platforms, networks like The Verge and TechCrunch? I think they're all doing uh, a great job. And the people who is now doing the investigative journalism as thank God we have them now. It started in traditional media and moved to those tech blogs that didn't have it. They were doing only like the hands-on reviews and uh, traditional, like we interviewed Mark Zuckerberg in a very flattering way. They're not doing it now. So they joined the camp of being uh, tougher on everybody. Uh, I mean, so they, it, it, it improved, it improved their journalism as well. Didn't they screw up in the first place by giving people like Musk and Zuckerberg a free ride, in, uh, 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 Steve Jobs as well, turning these people into of course he he heroic figures, which they're not? It was something that was not seen in other types of uh, coverage. This is why I started to investigate the tech coverage in the first place, because I came from political science. And I saw how, you know, political coverage is being, you know, the reporters in the White House are there to attack and to question and to do their job in that way. When I went to tech conferences, that wasn't the case. It was softball, right? No critical question, unless you're Kara Swisher or someone like that. And uh, well, even Kara Swisher has changed the tune. She used to be quite critical. She, uh, she used to be much more of an insider. Now she's increasingly critical. Yes, and it does co come to access. So we need to remember that all those years from the 90s that they uh, started to gain their strength and everybody wants to take news from here, from the Valley, they had this power on tech journalists, which is secrecy and limited access. And if you want access and if you want to talk to our big boss, we'll invite you if you, you know, do a favor and write favorably about it. And it was this relationship that wasn't talked about, but it was clear who is getting access. She was one of the few that got access and was critical, but most of the people who got access, uh, um, not intentionally, but I think there was this uh, silent agreement that they knew their limits. It's not, you have, uh, it's not happening now. In, in mind, people who were insiders who, who wrote very favorably in exchange for access? I don't want to name names. What about the, uh, yeah, but if you're going to talk about this stuff, you, you've got to be specific, otherwise it's too vague. What about the, the national press? The New York Times, you mentioned Cara Swisher. She now works for the New York Times. She has a column, a podcast. New York Times has, I think, shifted from being a, a cheerleader of tech to being much more critical. Even the Washington Post, which is, of course, owned by Jeff Bezos, has become quite yes. critical. Um, uh both of them are what we call in the communication research prestigious outlets that set the agenda. And there's a thing called pack journalism, which means that if you're a tech journalist in other places, there are not the New York Times of the world. You look at them. You look at the New York Times and the Washington Post. Look at the topics, as I said, and look at the framing. And you tend to do the same because you understand that they 
set the um, newsworthiness of things. They set what is news. Because if it's there, it must be something that I should cover as well. With the same attribute, with the same subject, with the same framing, just maybe different interviewees and things like that. So it creates this copycat uh, culture that they admit, they admit. We have a like pack mentality within. And we copy each other because we always look what our colleagues are doing, which is okay. And this is how they choose the things that they focus on. So yes, the New York Times were the first one to go heavily um, in the tech because it was... Um, not just hands-on review about the new iPhone, it was actually election manipulation, it was political issues, it was the election of Trump, it was issues that it's their basic let's, culture of writing on those things is much tougher than, let's say, I'm a tech blogger, a geek that used to just analyze the specs. Some people are watching this uh, near and saying, well, this idea that there is a that there is a center between these two extremes is simply wrong. Technology has done enormous damage and continues to do enormous damage to society. We had Shoshana Zuboff, for example, on the show. She has a book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, which suggests that the very architecture of most Silicon Valley companies are designed to exploit not just uh, society, but our, but our own selves. How, how would you respond to that critique? Uh, We've had many New York Times journalists on the show who have researched sure. books about the enormous damage. How would you defend the idea that somehow there's a balance? Okay. Uh, maybe think... the balance isn't there. Maybe it doesn't exist. Oh, I think Shoshana Zuboff is a great example of someone who wrote a brilliant book about an important topic. She actually coined something that all of us are using now, surveillance capitalism. And she was in Congress and she you know, educating uh, politicians about this stuff. She's doing a brilliant job as a tech critic. But, and this is why I think it's a good example, when she's interviewed in the media, they want just a snippet of something super, like, critical that they can use, right? So, as I said, it's an escalation. So her sentiment is something along the line that, um, let's say, again, Mark Zuckerberg, it's one of her targets in those interviews, is uh, that... He just sits at his keyboard, decides that all of humanity is right now with the button, is angrier and ruins society uh, and affects human nature just with his keyboard. It's something she said like uh, two weeks ago. So in that regard, when that happened, when she uh, portrayed, let's say, in the social dilemma that all of us are just Muppets with no human agency, with no like societal uh, context uh, to examine how technology maybe is, uh, you know, being used in other places and not misused. That, I don't think is productive. What about writers, journalists who, who talk about making the internet a better place? We've done many, many shows on that. Talia Stroud, for example, talking about creating or, or, or returning the internet to a public place, an architecture of publicness. Uh, we had Jonathan Rausch on the show, redesigning the, talking about how to redesign the internet to be friendly to the truth. Are journalists doing a good job about reforming the internet, particularly perhaps in terms of Web3 and crypto and rethinking the architecture of organizations and power in our networked age? Oh, that's brilliant, because... Um... My latest piece, uh, I called it Tech Journalist as Bullshit Detector and Hype uh, Slayers. And in there, there's a section specifically about that, where I say it's okay to, to say those are 
list of problems that we want to focus on. Bring the experts who can uh, have like really good arguments about the solutions and make them like uh, realistic solutions and highlight those experts, please. So that was like some of the things that I begged them to highlight. Not the ones who just say they are the devil. Bring the people who can say, oh, if you change the algorithm this way, if you change the, the groups this way, it will improve speech, it will improve connection, things like that. So yes, please have more than that of this type. Yeah. I respect the fact you don't want to vilify journalists you think are doing a bad job, but are there journalists around who you think do a good job? I know you cite my old friend Jeff Jarvis in your book. Are there journalists still around who you think are, are, are successfully... Um, are successfully displaying a more balanced attitude towards uh, contemporary tech and tech companies? I'm a huge fan of uh, tech journalists who became independent, like uh, uh, Casey Newton, platformer, Alex Cantrovis with uh, Big Technology. I think we have great tech columnists now that interview uh, brilliantly and ask nuanced questions. And I'm also a big fan of Mike Masnick, and this is why all of my opeds are uh, on Tech Dirt. Uh, I think he's a really strong uh, bullshit detector who calls things bullshit when they should be called. And again, overhyped innovation and also overhyped criticism. So he doesn't give any slack to both, which is great. Um, I think there are a lot of uh, journalists that have their beats that are really good at, and we saw it now with Elon Musk. So if you think about Matt Levine in, at Bloomberg, Every column is a must read, right? I think we can agree. So you have brilliant people who do, I think, really good uh, coverage that is uh, well-researched and have um, like a basic intent to go deeper than just, you know, populist headlines. What about reporting on crypto and on Web3? There was a massive crash in the crypto market. Um, over the last... Now, some will call it... Some will call it their entire well, suicides. Um, do, do tech journalists need to maintain a degree of balance towards crypto and Web3? Yeah, I think uh, we see that um, being played like from the beginning. People were, were really skeptical and saying it's a bubble. It's going to be like the dot com and it's going to crash and uh, it's overhyped. And it's even a scheme or, you know, people say Ponzi scheme, things like that. So people were critical from the beginning, from the uh, get go, which made the uh, actual innovators, they call them the builders, think it's an, uh, as I said, uninformed criticism. They don't understand what they're doing. It's like this advertising <laughs> with, uh, you know, he's an old guy and he was against other technologies, so he's against us. And so it created this camp of uh, people fighting over the narrative. And now with the crash, what I think we should call a correction, um, I don't think it's a bubble bursting as a balloon that's like deflating, going closer to earth as it should be. And it's a good thing for crypto, for blockchain, because it cleans some of the you know fraud and maybe keeps the good companies that have better intentions and better like economics to do it well. So it actually may be a, a blessing in, in all of this. Nirit, you have your own uh, Twitter page. Uh, you're an expert in some ways in social media. Does any of this really matter? I mean, anyone can open a social media account. Anyone can be on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or TikTok. Who cares now about mainstream media? It doesn't really have that much of an impact on the world. Oh, wow. It has. It has. 
it sets the narrative, as I said. It, it, the, the, talk, the subject that you're talking about, and maybe uh, don't agree about the narrative or the framing, are the subjects that are being dictated by the still traditional media. Even though we're celebrating the new independent uh, and online uh, outlets, they still uh, set the topics for discussion. And then the discussion can, you know, float to other things, but they still set the agenda. Well, it's an interesting argument. It's one certainly that it's not going to end soon. Uh, near <laughs> it, um, uh, near it, Weiss Blatt's The Tech Lash and Tech Crisis Communication is the beginning, perhaps, of the fight back of the tech industry against the tech clash or certainly an attempt to balance it out a little more. It's an interesting book, an interesting argument. I think she's rather brave to put her head above the parapet in terms of the onslaught that tech's getting. Congratulations, Nirit, on your new book. Uh, what else should people be reading in addition to your new book? Are there other uh, good new books on tech which are not part of the tech clash? Uh, so there are two that are not new, but I recently uh, finished um, listening to them. I'm strong in audiobooks now. Uh, so one is uh, How the Internet Happened. Um, Brian McKellar, I think how you pronounce his name. Uh, it's uh, from Netscape to the iPhone. And it's describing the, the internet rise and the change that it brought. And I think you can learn a lot about the key figures there who shaped the internet era. Uh, people like Mark Andreessen that changed heavily in the last few months, if you look at what he's uh, putting out on Twitter. But you can see the origin, as again, we, we talked about it. They put them as kings on the throne, and now we want them off the throne and the way they behave now. But they were smaller then. So he talks about those companies that began small, and now they're this huge big tech thing. So I think it gives us a historical perspective, which is important. It was interesting for me anyway. And the uh, other book that I just uh, finished listening to is uh, Always Day One by Alex Kantrovitz that I mentioned from Big Technology. And in there, he interviewed a lot of tech workers from within the big companies. So it's Amazon, Facebook, Google, Apple, and Microsoft. And he investigated their culture, culture of feedback, culture of invention. Uh, with Apple, it's, of course, the <laughs> secrecy. And uh, I think it brought you like this uh, inside look on how they operate. And I, th I think it's also had huge value and I learned a lot from it. 